This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from the resort at Pelican Hill in Newport Beach, California. Uh, quite a great location, in fact, in the history of this uh, program, this marks the third time we broadcast from the resort, so that should tell you something. Quite an amazing location, which we'll be talking about throughout the show. Most people don't realize that Newport is a number of islands. It's not just one. Uh, it's eight of them. And uh, one of them, of course, is uh, Balboa. And joining me now, the president of the Balboa Island Museum, Shirley Peppis. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. You know, there was once a statement made by a very effete New Yorker who said, you know, why would I go anything west of the Hudson? There's no there there. Uh, and, the, of course, the assumption being that there's no culture, there's no history, and, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. 
anytime you're dealing with water, anytime you're dealing with an island, you're going to get me to go to one of those museums because I live on the water and I live for that history. Tell me about the museum. How old is it? The museum was actually incorporated uh, in 1999, uh, but there so were, it's relatively there, new. Well, really new because that that was when it was only a storage facility, to be honest. And so around nine years ago, I came along and decided that there's more opportunity than having him in storage. So we started in a cottage okay, museum. But I got to stop. What was in storage? Photo, a lot of photos, a lot of uh, artifacts that are to do with the bay and uh, stories. Uh, and, and there was a group of people that had started. There was a, a board um, that I met only a couple of them because some were already gone. And um, so anyway, they were looking for someone to help them. They wanted to move. And I thought, this is a good idea. I'd mentioned to somebody if they ever did that, that I'd be happy to help them. My background was in was creative, and I thought I could help in you know, making this look like a museum. So we had a small cottage that we rented. And, um, had on the like island. Four, on the island, right, right on the beginning of the island. Um, and we, did, we were there for eight years. And then along came another opportunity with uh, down the street, second block, and one night somebody put up a for lease sign in the only building that would ever have been right for the museum. So by that night, I was on the phone with the broker and said, okay, yes, we're interested. I'll meet you there tonight, tomorrow, in the morning, whatever. So And then you got it. Got it. Didn't, wasn't really sure how we were going to pay for it, but we, you know, we had... <laughs> so let's go back to what, what you put in there. Okay. You mentioned artifacts, yes. such as? Artifacts such as uh, we had bathing suits. We had old boats. Uh, we had old bicycles. We had parts of boats. We so had basically, fishing you, rods. So basically, you were Goodwill. Goodwill, pretty <laughs> yeah, much, pretty much Goodwill. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, photographs were fabulous. Uh, we had there were a lot of those in storage, so I could take some of those and copy them so that they were museum quality. And and then as soon as we opened, people were very anxious to give us more, some money. Not a lot, some money, and, um, and, and then more things started coming in, and more stories. So we started doing oral interviews way and back. And building up an oral history. We did, and so that's been great. I think we have about probably 60. I, I think it is probably the happiest place on earth to grow up, because if you listen to these oral interviews with the local people, it's amazing. But in terms of, you know, once you open the doors, people are like lining up saying, hey, let me give you this, let me give you this. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, you have to say, I don't think so. Well, what we do is when you... What's the craziest thing that somebody tried to give you? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I just saw something in our new museum that I thought, what is this? <laughs> it was out on display, and I'm thinking, I have no clue what this is. I still don't know. It's just a big piece of wood that looked like a dragon. Anyway, that was the only thing. So the craziest thing... So it's the Balboa thing, Island Museum of Mystery. Yeah you, yeah, you might say that. But actually, because uh, Balboa Island and the harbor, all of the Hollywood stars started coming there. John Wayne. With John Wayne and, and many others. Because with that the wild was goose. Big, the wild goose, which is still here. As and you by know. the way, the wild goose was John Wayne's boat. 
It was a converted minesweeper. Yes. And if, for people who understand this, it was wooden. It had to be wooden to be a minesweeper because it was metal. It would have been blown up by the mines. Yes. And my favorite story on that, on that, on the wild goose, which is still in operation, but uh, as a charter, is that uh, he had a fireplace on board, and he was fined if he if he had a fire, he was fined by the harbor patrol, whomever, and he had a fire every time he went out, paid the fine. And uh, I guess they just put up with him. So, <laughs> and the boat's still floating. And the boat is still floating. Yeah, it looks. And good. it used to have a, another deck, I think. Well, they added a deck. They added a, they deck, added and, a deck and a cover, so yeah. they can use it for weddings and events. Exactly. And how often is the museum museum open? Uh, seven days a week, and uh, it's open from ten uh, pretty much retail hours because we are on Hello? Commercial Street with restaurants. Meaning we're not in Kansas anymore. first came out to California in 1971 as a correspondent for Newsweek, I had heard something about the Irvine Company. I had no idea what they did, except I was told at the time, they have a lot of land. And, uh, and then over the years, one by one, I would see what they were doing with that land. And part of that, of course, is where we are today, the resort at Pelican Hill. And joining me now, the, the president of resort properties at the Irvine Company, who can explain all this real estate, is Scott Hermes. How are you, man? Hey, good. I'm great to be, great to see you, Peter. And nice to see you again. I mean, I remember when they first built this property, and you weren't on the beach, you weren't way in the mountains, you were sort of in the middle, and you had a you had a challenge of how you were going to market it, how you're going to position it, and uh, but you know what? When you walk into the lobby here, you see the ocean. Yes, you do. And, and so you're not on the beach, but you see the ocean, and then. It's such an expensive property. I mean, how many acres are we talking about? Just over 500 acres. But who's counting? Who's counting? It's 504, actually. Then you're counting. And I was. Yeah. So in that 504 acres, golf courses? Yes, sir. How many? We have two Tom Fazio 18-hole championship golf courses, and that makes up about 80% of the property, uh, 400 acres. Right, but that's just the, this particular property from the Irvine Company because they've got so much more. That's absolutely correct. I mean, this, these, are, these are former ranches, weren't they? Yes. The uh, Irvine Ranch goes back to 1864, and it was originally comprised of 90,000 acres. It stretched from the mountains right to the coast. Wow. And, and most of that land today? Most of that land today, over 54,000 of those acres, have been preserved in perpetuity as open space. And that was an intentional decision? That was absolutely an intentional decision. And then, of course, there's UC Irvine. You guys were involved in that, I know. We absolutely were. That uh, 1,200 acres that uh, UCI Irvine sits on was uh, once our, our property. When you did the master plan here, all 504 acres, uh, were there surprises for you in terms of saying, okay, you know what, we wanted to do it this way, but no, we're going to change it now because we've learned our lesson. We're going to do X instead of Y. Well, I think the, the, the number one uh, goal of developing this land was to preserve as much of the land in the state that it was in before we started moving dirt around. 
And of the um, 400 acres that are on the golf course, for example, other than the, the tees, the fairways, and the greens, and the cart paths, everything else was left the way it was prior to us uh, beginning to develop the land. You know, it's always interesting to me, uh, I, I live both in New York and Los Angeles, and in Los Angeles I live on a, on a boat in the marina, and I'm always seeing runoff. I'm always seeing, you know, the L.A. sewer system running right into the ocean. Not a pretty picture. You're on a hill that runs down to the ocean. So your challenge from day one was sustainability. Well, and that was a key part of, uh, of the approval process. And we, uh, we irrigate the, uh, the golf course uh, with uh, reclaimed water and built in a very complex uh, and, and highly scientific uh, engineering, engineered system to retain all of that water on our property line. So nothing that we use at the resort leaves our property. All right, but let's get down to a deeper definition of sustainability, which always confuses me because it's sort of like ecotourism. It sounds good, but I have no idea what it means. So let's go from the let's not wash your towel in the, in the guest room to recycling. What else are you guys doing here that's making a statement? Well, from a from and, a, and making a difference, and and making it <clears throat> excuse me, making a difference from uh, the very beginning of uh, outlining what the property was going to look like. Sustainability was uh, was was paramount, and in developing the property, all of the systems and technologies that were put in place uh, at at fairly great expense were designed to uh, be kind to the environment and to conserve our resources. Now. Now you, now, you mentioned the golf course because golf courses consume huge amounts of water. They do. So you had to plan in advance for that. We did. We absolutely then did. Then there's power itself. Well, the power itself and, and uh, one of our latest uh, sustainability initiatives is next month we put in uh, the largest uh, Tesla battery uh, installation, actually the first Tesla battery installation of any five-star property in the world. And when you say a battery installation, explain that. What that, what that will do, it's, it's a win for us and it's a win for the utility. Overnight, when energy is at its lowest, those batteries charge up. And then the, the following day, where the peaks, peak usage of, of energy is during the day, the battery kicks in and it takes, we're not drawing from the grid, and the benefit to the utility is it doesn't stress them. The benefit for us is utility rates are lower during the middle of the day, and so it's a two-win. Well, you know, when you mentioned the word Tesla battery, I had this vision of a 17,000-foot Elon Musk descending, you know, from the sky, but we're not talking about the car. No, we're, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is about a 40-foot long, 12-foot uh, tall series of Tesla batteries that uh, will replenish themselves overnight. Uh, by drawing off of the uh, the utilities electric grid. All right, stupid question. What are they running? What are they What are they running? They will run. They're not going to run your air conditioning. They're not going to run our air conditioning, but they will they will contribute to reducing the amount of electricity that we draw from the grid during the peak season. Or peak season, excuse me, the peak time period, which is um, smack in the middle of the day. It will power the heat, light, and uh, energy systems as a contributor to that for anything any electric need across the resort. And of course, you got to plan ahead. So, plans to do more? Potentially, uh, we have uh, plenty of space. That if this works out successfully, we we could always add to it. Or you could just you know attach a, you know a grid to the treadmill at the at the, uh, the health club and see what happens. No, okay, fine. <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, you don't. Th What's your biggest challenge here? 
Uh, our biggest challenge uh, as an independent property uh, is folks that may not be aware that we exist and, and what we are. Well, let's, let's talk about what that means to be an independent property, because you don't have the, the benefit of a huge reservation system. That's correct. You don't have, I mean, you're not, a, you're not in a network, so to speak, right? I mean, are you, you're, you're not part of a, of a Starwood in the old days or Marriott. You're, you're a standalone. That's correct, and, and that gives us opportunities uh, as well, because being an independent property, well, we have the freedom to do what's right for this particular asset without worrying about implications that may exist because of being part of a larger organization. And by the way, I, I couldn't be happier to know that, because what gets me angry as a guest is when a hotel thinks that one size fits all, when a hotel thinks that the, the washcloth can only be this big or the, or the bathtub can only be this small because that's the way it was in Cleveland, doesn't necessarily mean that works in Los Angeles or in Southern California. No, that's, that's absolutely correct. Here's, here's the story that I'll tell you. I remember checking into the Savoy Hotel in London back in 1973. And as I'm walking to my room, I didn't realize this, but the bellman was literally sizing me up, right? And so I don't know what he did because I wasn't aware of it, but I knew that five minutes after I got into the room, there was a knock on the door from housekeeping, and they had my bathrobe. Now, in those days, I took an extra large by, my, by U.S. standards. What they did at that hotel is they never put sizes on the bathrobe, so you didn't know what they were giving you, but they knew which was which. And whatever th size they thought you were, they gave you two sizes bigger. So when you came out of the shower and you put that bathrobe on, a family of five could fit in there with you, <laughs> but you felt so good about it. You know, you felt, like, you felt so comfortable. You felt that like they loved you, right? They were giving you a hug. You know, I ended up buying four bathrobes, right? But versus going to a hotel where there's the same bathrobe in the wall, and, it, and you know it's like Tarzan's loincloth. It's not doesn't really you know right. So you have that ability to do that. We do, and it's it's all about anticipating the guest's need and trying to help fulfill it before they ask for it. All right. So give me an example <clears throat> of where you can do that because you're an independent standalone. Well, I, um, goodness gracious, it's anything that you put in the room uh, or that you put on the, uh, on the menu for your, uh, for your, your restaurants or in your, your banquet product. Uh, there's no standard that has been dictated to us by, uh, by a larger entity. Uh, it's, it's up to us to create that. And, and so to, please tell me you do not have chicken figures on the menu. We, you will know it. never have a boneless breast, a portion-controlled <laughs> frozen rubber chicken with sauce at the resort. I can All right, assure I'm you leaving. that. That's it. <laughs> Good for you. I mean, I, I always look at the. I, I determine a great hotel by by who does or doesn't get creative with the kids menu. And I don't have any kids, but I like a good grilled cheese sandwich. But I will look at the kids. It's always chicken fingers and a grilled cheese sandwich, and it's a terrible grilled cheese sandwich. Well, you know, there there is a certain amount, and I have two kids, and I remember when they were that age. And there's only so many things they're going to eat. So if you try to get a little too creative. Uh, it may look good on the menu, but when you put it in front of the kids, they're going to say, where's my grilled cheese no, I'm sandwich? Not asking or... for, I'm not asking for Gordon Ramsay to stop by at the table. Right. I'm just saying you've got to do better than chicken fingers on a grilled cheese sandwich. Absolutely, and, and we do. And, and I think it's important that we balance what the kids are going to eat with a quality product and some creativity. And, and that's when you pull all three together. And the kids eat, and they're happy, then the parents are happy. And, and your kids are still talking to you. They are still talking. I'm to just me. double checking. I have to ask that question. I didn't give them Brussels sprouts when they were kids, but they'll eat them now. They're older. But you see, you can disguise Brussels sprouts if you dip them in cheese. You'll have to ask Chef about that one. I will. <laughs> I will ask Chef about that one. And 
What's the one thing, since we're, I, I'm going to ask the chef the same question, but I'm asking you now as a consumer, what's the one thing you had on your menu that you said, this sucks, get it off the menu? And what's the one thing you had on the menu that said, can we put this on the menu, and it went through the roof? Wow, that's a, that's a really good one. Um, and you can't say chicken fingers. I can't, no, chicken, fing chicken no. fingers, absolutely not. Sometimes uh, we, can get a, we can get a little out there on, on a special item uh, because we uh, want to be creative, and, and if it doesn't work, we're not going to put it back out there. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. I'm old enough to remember when they opened this place 14 years ago. Uh, and the cool thing is it's only 20 minutes from uh, John Wayne Airport, 40 minutes from Long Beach Airport, and 80 minutes from LAX. But who wants to go to LAX ever? Uh, you know what they just did at LAX? They just changed the rules on who can pick you up at the airport. It's gonna, and it just went into effect two days ago. And I have to tell you, this is ridiculous. Imagine a family of four coming off a six-hour flight with their bags trying to get home. Well, they can't. They have to schlep their bags to a shuttle bus. Then the shuttle bus schleps them up to a remote parking lot. And then they either get a taxi ride or a Lyft or an Uber. That is nuts. Now, I understand why the airport's doing it because they're going to take 15,000 cars out of that loop in the airport every day. But I'm sorry, it's just, it's not workable. And, I, and, and you're going to add between 30 and 50 minutes to your travel time every time you land at LAX, which is why you want to fly to John Wayne and then forget it. <laughs> it's just the way I'm saying it. But anyway, forgetting that, we're here at the resort at Pelican Hill. And joining us now, the managing director who I hope it doesn't have to fly out of LAX, Tom Donovan. How are you, sir? Doing great, Peter. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming in. Great to well, have listen, you Well, th listen, this is not the first time we broadcast from here. I think this represents the third time we've done the show. Always happy to do it. Uh, you know, your, your history in the hotel business is interesting because every time you get a job, it's at a great location. I, I'm really jealous. I mean, you were in Hawaii. You were in, you know, at the Bachelor Gulch in, uh, in, uh, for the Ritz-Carlton. And, and by the way, that hotel, when they first opened it, as you may remember better than anybody, Tom, I fell in love with the dog. Yeah, Bachelor. Bachelor, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, it was one of the smartest marketing moves you've ever done at a hotel where anybody who checked into the hotel, they would loan you the golden retriever for the night. Oh, my God. Bachelor was, I think Bachelor finally unionized and went on strike. But, <laughs> but it was, it was unbelievable. I know. And now you've been here for how long at, 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 the, at Pelican Hill? Been here two and a half years. Came here straight from Maui and uh, been loving it ever since. It's such a fantastic resort when you get, to, get a chance to actually see it. Well, you know, given your experience in, in so many of these luxury properties, has it changed your definition of what luxury travel is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you, you look at a place like Pelican Hill, um, and it's an Italian seaside village uh, recreated right here in Newport coast. Um, it has, it, it's obviously five star, great experience, luxury, but it has a relaxed feeling to it too. So it's not, it's not stuffy. It's none of those things, not pretentious, but just wonderful luxury, great service and a great place to just come and relax for three or four days or, or a week or some of our guests have been here for three or four years. Um, but it's just been just a fantastic place to, uh, to get that relaxed vibe. And, and in the middle of Newport, which is a 
kind of a bubble in between L.A. and San Diego. Just a great, safe place, easy to get around, not much traffic. It's it's kind of a gem right here on the in the Southland of California. Well, plus you've got the space to play in. Oh, it's 500 acres right here on Newport Coast, right attached to Crystal Cove, um, the beach here, and it's kind of a throwback to the. 30s and 40s type of beach with these bungalows down there as well um, and some nice, nice little restaurants that you can chill out at. So it's a very different vibe for any beach in California and it's literally two minutes from the resort. But so many people are still struggling to come up with a definition of terms of what is luxury uh, and especially when they're trying to deal with uh, the M word, millennials. And, yeah. and, you know, and, and millennials will tell you that they don't care about a car they don't care about material items, um, and they want something that's genuine and authentic, and my favorite word, curated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I get all that, but are you seeing that with your clientele? You know, we are because we do we do so many family vacations as well here. The multi generational that comes in, and the millennials are are as excited and relaxed to be here as the parents are. Um, and here's the other thing: we have two beautiful golf courses, world-class golf courses, but we're not necessarily a golf resort. We just happen to be an all-encompassing resort with fantastic golf, fantastic spa, but then a lot of desti- a lot of stuff in our destination, you know, Newport, Be- the Newport Harbor that's here, the, the hiking, the biking, all the stuff that you can do. It's amazing how many activities for all sides of the family can come here and, and enjoy. Well, see, to me, the definition of a great luxury hotel is not necessarily the, the, the brick and the mortar or the room size or the amenities. It's what you're able to do to enable your guests within a 50-mile radius of your hotel to have those kinds of experiences. Absolutely. And, and you know, we have, you know, the, you go to Newport Harbor, you got the Duffy boats that go around, we got all sorts of fishing. You can cruise over to Catalina. We can do helicopter rides from John Wayne right over to Catalina or take the boat over. You have Laguna down south of us, uh, Huntington Beach, which is really doing some great stuff up there as well. You know, all throughout this this whole part of the shore is really resurrecting, and not just for one age group, one demographic. It's got multiple things. Plus, you know, we're not very far from Disneyland and some other things that people can get to. So, you come here. There's just a plethora of things that you can get your get your arms around, and it's for all ages, truly, um, for all ages. And the staff the staff has you know, as, as great as this hotel is, the staff's even better. I mean, the way they deliver service to all different uh, demographics here is just fantastic to watch. Well, two things that come out of this. One is you want to determine a great hotel. Find out what the turnover of the staff is. What's the average age of the you know, length of their employment? And that will tell you everything you need to know. Absolutely. We've we've actually been doing some good things here, getting that turnover down um, and, and really making sure that people are, you know, we've changed the whole training sessions. We've changed the whole way of empowering the, the team, not just to fix things, but empower them to create memories. And that's really the fun part of our business. When you kind of do something off the reservation and kind of figure out some sort of memory for their visit, why are they here is a big, big thing that we talk to our team about is find that reason why they're here and then let's expose that and really do some fun things around it whether it's you know the family getting together it's a honeymoon or an anniversary or a baby moon or or whatever it is how do we make sure we understand it and then go after it and really deliver a memory around it 
Exactly. Tom Donovan, the managing director at the resort of Pelican Hill, who's having just too much fun in this job. I can tell. I can tell. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. My next guest was actually... Well, sort of from the Orange County, but then spent most of her time in Northern California, came back to become the managing editor at the Newport Beach Independent. Sarah Hall, how are you? Yes, good. Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? Okay, well, listen, since you're a local girl, you, you probably have the best context here to tell me how Newport Beach has changed in the last 10 to 15 years, because I remember when I first came down 48 years ago, oh. 1971, <laughs> Um, a little before my time. A little before time. I mean, you know, you had Balboa Island, and you, you, but it was nothing like it is today. Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of growth. Um, and you had the Balboa Bay Club. It was about. Yeah, it. there's a few things yeah. that have stayed yeah. for sure um, yeah. for a long time that have been here and just will never go away. And that's great because people love that, you know, love that. But yeah, there's been a lot of growth and development, and it's kind of been changing, um, changing with the times, and. Uh, you know, the harbor has gotten very busy and very active, and that's a big part of the city. And tourism, obviously, is huge. So, yeah, it's it's been growing. <laughs> you know, we were talking earlier with Tom Donovan talking about, you know, Catalina and Avalon yeah. and the very famous song, 26 Miles Across the Sea. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you something. It actually is 26 miles across the sea from Newport, not yeah. from L.A. <laughs> yeah. It's 43 miles across the sea from L.A. I'm just going to yeah. make people know that there's a difference there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, someone actually in a jetpack, uh, I think it was like a water-fueled jetpack, crossed that a couple years ago. It was pretty crazy. Did they ever find the body? Yeah, no, not to this day. No, <laughs> no, you know, he, he made it safe and sound. But it, it is. Amazing. I mean, I mean, Catalina is very accessible from Newport. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's we cover it sometimes because there are a lot of people in Newport who go over there. A lot of people, obviously, with boats here, and they go back and forth. And it's a Catalina and Newport have a long-term relationship, and it's um, really interesting how the two kind of work together and how they interact and stuff. How the demographics of the population changed? Because I always looked at Newport Beach as old money. Yeah. Is yeah. it still old money? There is still quite a quite a bit of that. There's a lot of people who have been here for 50, 60 years yeah. and a long time. But I, I do see it changing a little bit right now. I think there's that older generation. And then there's a lot of younger families coming in, um, you know, like young business people and um, with younger kids. And, and that, that that demographic is really starting to blow up here, I think. And the food scene's gotten better. Oh, my gosh. Oh, there's so much food. <laughs> By the way, 48 years ago, dinner at the Balboa Bay Club was either prime rib or mahi-mahi. Enough. <laughs> Stop. There's a lot more. There's, I know. There, there are so many amazing restaurants here. And, and, you know, like, as a journalist, they say, you know, the ink runs in your veins. Well, the coffee is what fuels my brain. And I know every coffee shop by heart. <laughs> really? Yeah. It's that bad for you? Yeah. Oh, it's bad. All right. So since you opened the door... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a coffee drinker, but many oh. of my listeners are. Oh, yeah. What's the hottest cup of coffee in town? Well, my favorite is uh, Pacific Way. That's W-H-E-Y. As in eating your curds. And, yeah, yeah, a little play on yeah. words. Yeah. Clever. Uh, and I, I really like that. A lot of seating, a lot of great coffee. Um, I just had, actually this week, I had a charcoal coconut latte, and it was so good. And they have great... As you would. Yeah. No, it's like yeah. so trendy, but it was so good. And uh, a lot of great cookies and baked goods. I mean, they're my favorite. All right, so, okay, so that's where you go for coffee. Well, where do you go for breakfast? 
there's a lot of different places. I go to the Lighthouse Cafe. I actually just ate breakfast there the other day. Um, there's champagnes. There's there's a lot of good places. So basically, it has nothing to do with the breakfast. It has to do with the fact that they, they load you up with champagne. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, the, all those mimosas early in the morning are good. Good to get me going. Get you going. <laughs> no, there's just a lot of good places to eat, yeah. And lunch? Uh, lunch would be a number of places. I'd go back to Champagne's. <laughs> no. So basically you're trying to tell me no. you haven't left since breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm just double checking. Yeah, no, you can get some like burgers at Village Inn or go get a, you know, you, you got to have a Balboa bar or a what's frozen. A Bal- what's a Balboa bar? It's an ice cream bar and it's, it's famous. And the frozen banana, the original frozen banana on Balboa Island, those are like... The classic Balboa items that you gotta get. Now it's a chocolate covered. Yeah. Well, you can't. Yeah, and you can get nuts on it if you want, or not, or sprinkles, or whatever. It's um, the original frozen banana. Balboa yeah, bar. Got that's, it. it. Says it on the sign. Original frozen. If banana. it says it on the sign, you gotta believe it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and then dinner. Oh, El Ranchitos is really good. Their street tacos are excellent. Carne asada is really good. So, I mean, there's so much food here. I mean, there's so many places. Uh, our our dining editor just wrote an article about Lidl Bottle Works, and they go to the farmer's market uh, every week and get fresh food. And then there's a place doing uh, like a real all cheese all month. It's like drenched in everything. It's amazing. What's the name of it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's on Balboa Island, I think. It's Oh, I'm forgetting now. You just <laughs> well, mentioned my up. favorite food, cheese. I know. I just saw a video, and I thought, oh, my, I have to go there. I haven't right. gone there yet, even. Right. Sarah Hall, you owe me that name. I'm sorry. you got to get me that name. I mean, everything they serve has got cheese on it? Well, it's it's like a whole promotion that they're doing. Um, uh, I think it's for a few months or something. And um, and they, they come to your table, and the cheese is melting. It's just... It's basilic. Ah, yeah, basilic. So. All right, and melted cheese table side. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm there. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I can't wait to go and try it out. I don't like I said I only saw the video and I'm I'm a cheese fan, so I'm going there. <laughs> yeah, of course it's BYOC in there. It's yeah. bring your own champagne. <laughs> yeah, we know. Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio, with no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest is an old buddy of mine. We go back too far to remember, but every time I come here, I come looking for him because he has the uh, dubious distinction of being the executive chef here. Jean-Pierre Dubray, how are you, sir? I'm wonderful, and it's so nice to see you, Peter. And nice to see you, too. You know, earlier in the show, we were talking to Scott Hermes from the, from the Irvine Company, and, and I asked him a question, and he sort of skirted it, so I have to ask you. In your years here, and you've been here how long now? 11 years. So they haven't found out? No. Okay, good. So in the 11 years you've been here, what's the one item you put on the menu that you thought was going to be fabulous, and it just died and then what's the other item that you put on the menu like saying do i really have to put this on the menu really and it became so popular well i think it goes by the time and uh you know there is many dishes they get very hot uh when you start putting them and then all of a sudden as you mentioned they die Okay. Uh, one thing that uh, um, because of a lot of people with the diet or the always want to look good, uh, 
the sauces. The sauces, we always try now to make sure that they don't have any flour because we don't want to deal with, you know, flour with gluten-free guests and then a lot less dairy because, you know, the fat content. So those are, you know, we don't do any more of the, uh, we do some of the beurre blanc and all the, those sauces, cream. You'll, you'll save those the, for me. Exactly. I mean, but uh, so a lot more of the salsa, vinaigrettes, things like that. that you know, accompany. seven years ago, I never even heard of the word gluten, right? And now, I like gluten-free. Have gluten-free, gluten-free. You know what? I really want to open a new restaurant. And you know what the title is? Gluten for punishment. <laughs> I want to have it all gluten. I want a totally all gluten restaurant, just to say enough already. But I know it, I'm not making fun in that way. I know it's a problem for some people. Well, uh, definitely. I mean, especially if somebody is a celiac, um, yes. this is a very serious, and uh, you have to make sure that there is absolutely no gluten. And then there is also guests that did just do that as a way of life. So it doesn't mean that you have to cut it down completely. Um, but uh, some people think that uh, without uh, gluten, they will have a better life. And so basically what I should that. do is order a dish for me with a little gluten on the side. I think it's like anything. Yeah, as long as you don't need too much yeah. all the time, a little bit is not going to hurt you. So let's say you, you decide to be gluten-free um, as a way of life. But if once in a while, you're going to have a little piece of crouton on your salad. It's not going to do anything to you, well, in I, my opinion. I have an admission to make. I have not had a single piece of meat in 11 years. And when I say meat, that means chicken, red meat, pork, hot dogs, ribs, nothing, right? right. I do have an admission to make, though. Once a year, and only one night a year, I will go to Paris. There's a restaurant right off the Champs-Élysées called Le Hide. It's an Asian-French fusion restaurant. Uh, and the guy makes the most... Uh, this is so politically incorrect. People are going to be writing me letters. I, he makes the most amazing hot foie gras. And one night a year, that's it. I have one. Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's fine because... And then, of course, I pass out and they have to you know, call the ambulance. <laughs> but, but no, that's, that's no, it. At the end of the day, this is something you look forward to. This is something that makes you feel good, yeah. and it's okay, you know. So when you when you cut uh, any type of item because of uh, health uh, that uh, could be dangerous to you, I totally agree. But sometimes I think we go a little bit overboard with cutting uh, certain items of your diet forever, and it, it's not always really necessary. Oh, listen, I still cook food for all my friends. I do amazing barbecue ribs and ribeyes, and I do great chicken and rotisserie. I, but I don't eat it, and, 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 and I have to tell you, I miss it terribly. Yeah. So to go back to your question about yeah. the item that yeah. uh, uh, we uh, have on the menu and we would like, to, well, not would like to take it out, but there is example. You I can't have, take it off the menu. Right. A risotto, a risotto in Andrea that is made, you know, cook in the kitchen, uh, served table side on the Parmesan wheel. That one, we're never going to be able to take it out. We've been doing this for 11 <laughs> years, and every day I, I have people stopping me in the lobby and so say, If you take it off the menu, I'm not coming back. Okay, that's exactly right. So, so you know, those are the type of dishes that we want to keep and because they, make, they are an impression to the guest, and they make people feel good, and, they are, and it's a very good dish. Well, listen, what people don't realize until you explain it to them is that a, a great hotel and resort experience is an entertainment. Yes. You're putting on a show. Absolutely. I mean, uh, chefs, we always said we are entertainers. A lot of time, though, we don't know how to make money, so that's why people always wonder. But so, so then you're not Canadians. at Pelican Hill. <laughs> You've been here how long now? 11 years. Okay, so the point is you're doing okay. Yes. 
And that dish is still on the menu. Was that dish on the menu when you came in? We created uh, with the first Italian chef um, here at uh, For Andrea. We created together. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. I always, you know, Orange County itself, this region in Southern California, is still relatively young. It's still relatively in development. It's still finding its way in terms of design and architecture and and in certain cases trying to figure out how to preserve what it had. And my next guest knows all about that because he's an architecture and urban design tour guide with a a master's in, uh, in urban planning. And a a PhD. Excuse me, braggart. Dr. Bill Hoffman, how are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks, Peter. You know, further north of us, of course, is Los Angeles, which I like to describe as 86 86 separate incorporated cities in desperate search of a community. Um, How would you describe where we are now? Um, Orange County is a pretty young county. It broke away from Los Angeles in the 1880s, and it was trying to find its identity. And it grew very slowly because it was mostly agricultural land. It had Santa Ana, Anaheim, and San Juan Capistrano. The rest of it was ranch land and agriculture. Then, after World War II, the suburban boom hit, and Orange County grew incredibly fast. I think it grew too fast for its own good. I remember going to Disneyland as a kid. It was surrounded by orange groves. So orange- my, mother, my mother is a Los <laughs> Angeles native and reminded me of that every time I went. Yeah, yes. and the smell is great. And what you said was really interesting. It is a, it is a comparatively young county, but it is now fully built out because there's no more room to grow. The northern part of the county grew very rapidly from 1955 to 1975, and the south part of the county was sort of an open space. And then the planned communities of Irvine, Mission Viejo, Rancho Santa Margarita, now they're up against the Santa Ana Mountains, the Cleveland National Forest. And that's as far as you're going to go. Exactly. So the last planned community is being built right now. And it's Rancho Mission Viejo. And that was part of the original Mexican-Spanish land grant that went all the way from Camp Pendleton all the way up to uh, Lake Forest. Wow. And Camp Pendleton, they bought half of it. But where we are now on land owned by the Irvine Company, that, that was former ranch land. Yes, this was cattle grazing. And they had a little bit of agriculture along the coast. They had these beautiful little bungalows uh, down there at Crystal Cove, and they preserve them, and that is now... I passed them on the way over here because that's part of the state park. Yeah, it's super fun. It's the only state park I know where there is a historic district right on the beach, and you can rent those little bungalows for a very reasonable price thanks to the California Coastal Commission. Nicely done. And my wife and I finally got a reservation, even though we were only five miles away. Have you done it yet? We're going to do it in February. I love it. Yeah. It's love super it. cool. It's a, it's a wonderful state Because as you're driving down the coast highway on before you make the turn to come here, you see all the preserved land there all the way to the ocean. Yeah. And you see a couple of little bungalows out there going, what are those? Yeah. And that's those were originally bungalows built for the Japanese farmers um, in the early 1900s. And then when the farming stopped, the Irvine Company allowed people to stay in the bungalows. And it became sort of a weekend hangout. They had their martini bell at 5 o'clock, and they filmed a couple movies there. And they were going to build a large resort, but the state of California and some local preservationists said, wait a minute, this is fantastic coastal land, let's make it a state park. So what are the challenges now? The challenges of Orange County? 
Orange County is totally built out. So the challenge now is to create interesting places for people to go, other than it being a car-oriented county. Uh, there are so many large arterials that you can barely cross the street on a red light. So the, the challenge for Orange County is to make it more walkable, to preserve beautiful places like San Juan Capistrano. Uh, San Clemente's done a beautiful job of preserving their downtown. Ole Hansen had this dream of a Spanish village by the sea. So Orange County, they don't really compete with L.A., but they have to create interesting places. Well, you know what I did earlier today? We were talking to Sam Rubin earlier on the show. Uh, he turned me on to e-bikes. Yeah. And we went down to Corona Del Mar and jumped on this e-bike. Oh, my God. These things have a range of 50 miles before you have to charge them. And you get to pedal, but if you get to a hill, you, you just, don't have to pedal. Yeah, you just put it in eco mode, and, oh, and it, they are wonderful. Unbelievable. And it's a different way to see the city. Yeah, I really like it. Um, in fact, if you go to Newport Beach, there's the boardwalk, and that's a really safe place to ride your bike. You can go to Balboa Island, cross the ferry, and you can go miles all the way past Huntington Beach. They've got great bike paths there. Great yeah. bike paths. And the bi there's also great bike paths along the Santa Ana River. But I would not recommend people riding bikes in the rest of Orange County. Super dangerous. It's got three point three more than 3 million people, right. the third most populous county. It's a dangerous place to ride bikes. Okay, unless you're on the path. Unless you're on a path, and then it's fantastic. And I would like to say something, Peter, as a tour guide. Uh, oftentimes I do tours with corporate groups. Guess what the number one thing they love about this place? It's the weather. Of course. There's no humidity. It's 76 degrees almost every day, 325 days How of sun. Boring. <laughs> it, it's, it's boring, but if you're on vacation, it's pretty great. It's not bad. And you can bike around here. Yeah, absolutely. It's not bad. Yeah. So in the time we've got left, since you're the big tour guide here, where are you taking me for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Okay, I would take you, I would take you to the Los Rios Historic District in San Juan Capistrano, which is the oldest continuously lived-in neighborhood in California. It's right next to Mission San Juan Capistrano, and I would take you to the Ramos House Cafe. It is early California, built in 1870 in a clapboard structure. We'll be eating kind of outdoors, and right next is the Mission Revival train station. So you can't beat that. We're talking tamales. Yeah, you're talking tamales, early California cuisine. Um, it's, it's really, really excellent. And lunch? Lunch, I would, I would go to Little Saigon. Uh, Little Saigon is the largest concentration of Vietnamese outside of Vietnam, and it spills so over. I thought it was Monterey Park. Monterey Park is mostly Chinese-American. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would go to Little Saigon. I'd go to Bolsa Avenue, and there are some excellent pho restaurants, really, really good food. And it's a fantastic ethnic enclave. And dinner? Dinner. I would take you to Kaya, which is the rooftop hotel in Laguna Beach. It's in a historic hotel called Cami uh, Casa del Camino. They serve Spanish tapas, and there's a rooftop bar. You can look out over Catalina Island, which is nice. only 26 miles away. Oh, I know the, I know that <laughs> mileage. It's the and, only place where it's 26 yes, miles away. That's right, and you know the song, so I do. That, that would be my choice for dinner. Well, Bill Hoffman, I, lo I love these tips. I love these tips. But the key is stay, stay only on the bike paths. Yeah, exactly. I do. I, I mean, I want to be honest. It's a car-oriented county. You've got to be very, very careful. I know. My mother came here one day to walk, and she was pulled over for walking. <laughs> they wanted to know why she was walking. Yeah. I get it. Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Uh, I've been looking forward to meeting our next guest for a while because, well, he's a surfer, number one. My uncle is a surfer. I've been a surfer. 
and co-author with his wife of Surfing Newport Beach, The Glory Days of Corona Del Mar, which, by the way, to give you guys a sense of place, from where we are right now in Pelican Hill, Corona Del Mar is maybe 25 minutes away. At the most. At the most. Paul Burnett, welcome to the show. Aloha and mahalo for thanking me. Yes. And, of course, you're saying aloha and mahalo because my uncle was one of those great surfers who born, wasn't born in, in, in Hawaii. He was a, a local boy in Santa Monica. doing, the, doing a, He was a, a surfing boy there. And then in about 1953, he sailed to Hawaii on his own, met my aunt, uh, Kainui. And the next thing you know, he started a company called Surfline Hawaii. They, they, they're still in business, run by my cousin Pua and my other cousin Nohea. And uh, they're making jams and all the surfing gear. And uh, my cousin is still a unbelievably crazy kite surfer who, who goes across the bay and, uh, to, uh, to, it's, it's, to Molokai. Uh, but I remember learning how to surf, not in California, but in Sandy Beach in, in, in Hawaii, uh, and, and which, which had a break there that would break your neck if you weren't careful. Uh, you're nodding your head because you know. That's more well known as a body surfing beach. It is. Yeah. It is. And you break your neck doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> but you surfed here. Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, Blackies, which is down on the peninsula, is what I consider to be my local spot, at least in part because uh, we were based there. Our store was based right there for many, many years. And look, you, you found the, the UCLA Surf Club. I was one of the founders. Yeah. Russ, Russ Kalish was the one who put up the signs on the bulletin board, and I was one of the founding members. Because I remember growing up, I didn't grow up with them, but I grew up knowing about them, guys like Dewey Weber and Mickey Munoz and, and uh, Ho, Ho, uh, Hobie Alter, all those guys. Yeah, there were a lot of great people, and in fact, a number of those uh, what we consider to be some of our later founding fathers, had surf shops right in Newport Beach. Dale Velzi, Pat Curran, Joe Quigg, a number of those fellows had surf shops And then, of, course, of course, the surf shops people know now are like Ron John. Ron John and, and uh, well, even Tilly's. And, and, and of course, our, some of our larger locals like Huntington Surf and Sport and Jack's and Huntington Beach. Well, Jackson Huntington Beach is where my uncle was inducted into the Surfing Hall of Fame. That's right. You mentioned that. Yeah. I was there the day it happened. Amazing story. But tell me about the culture when you, when you were growing up, because you're a South Bay guy. So when you were growing up and surfing, what was it like then and what is it like now and what's still preserved? Um, it was a – starting in 1960s, I started in 1960 – and it was when surfing really first broke out because we went from the balsa boards to the polyurethane uh, foam boards. And it became much easier for shapers to shape them than it was with the balsa. And it enabled them to be uh, more cheaply available. And so kids, kids went into it. In my day, you usually started surfing when you were like going into high school. Now the kids start surfing almost as soon as they can walk. Uh, the culture has changed in that it might, it, when I first started surfing, you could say surfing was considered a little bit of a rebellious sport. Today, it's much more accepted. Today, you have all kinds, instead of it just being like a guy sport, you have kids, little kids doing it. You have moms and dads doing it. Uh, and you still go down at Blackies? I still go down at Blackies uh, very early in the morning normally. <laughs> 
And of course, you're wearing a wetsuit. Uh, full, yep, full wetsuit. Being the age I am, I'm, I, I'm not going out there trunking it anymore. It's, Can I ask how old you are? Uh, I'm now 73. Well, you know, when I was at Newsweek magazine back in 1971, uh, because it just happened one day, I happened to be in London, and I had to get to New York, and then get back to Los Angeles, and then get to Hawaii. And I looked at the airline schedules, and I said, I wonder if this is possible. And I said, I want to try. So I got up at 5 in the morning in London, went swimming with my uncle in the Serpentine, then ran to the airport, got on the Concorde, flew to New York, got into a car, went out to Fire Island, jumped in the Atlantic, went back to Kennedy, jumped on a plane, like a 2 o'clock plane, got to L.A. at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, jumped in the Pacific, froze my you-know-what off, right? People think the Pacific is warm. Maybe in Hawaii it is, but not in L.A. <laughs> and then got the 8 o'clock flight to Honolulu, got there at 11 and jumped in the water. And I'm telling you this because I'm an idiot, <laughs> but I did it. That's fantastic. That's, that's kind of reminiscent of some of the fellows nowadays where you'll hear about a big swell on the North Shore. And, you'll and they'll chase it. And they'll chase it all the way to Mavericks in Northern California or down into Mexico. And by the way, let's be honest, Mavericks can easily kill you. And it has. Mark Fu passed, was killed there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it can. I mean, that is one big swell. But now let's go back to Corona Del Mar. You're still going down to Blackie's. Right. And you're still, and you're still getting in the water. Yes. What are you teaching the younger kids? Everything from uh, the old Hawaiian saying, never turn your back on the ocean, to basically just uh, trying, when I do see someone, trying to help them learn safety. Because I think that's first and foremost, even though we've got a lot of the soft top boards out there now, which are a little more forgiving if you get hit by one, it's still all about keeping that board pointed always into the waves, uh, just learning how to be careful, how to be respectful of everybody else out in the water, uh, and always, first and foremost, have fun. Has the ocean changed? The ocean itself, no, no. It's still the beautiful thing I remember from the very first wave I ever caught. When was that? That was in the summer of 1960 in a place called Carpinteria up above oh, I below Santa Barbara. I love Carpinteria. Yeah, I know that yeah. place. Yep. And uh, forget Santa Claus Lane, but... but it, <laughs> that's right. I know it. But, I mean, that's where the train goes. The train goes right by. Oh, the, the campground there. Yeah. As kids, we when we camped there with my parents and the trains would come by at night and we'd all try and get out of the tent to watch the train go by. And the train always made noise. It always it always honked the horn. It was it blew that horn. But I mean I remember Carpinteria because there was a little break there right in the corner. Uh, where I was was where the pier was. Yeah. Or at least that's where I first started catching waves. But there's not a pier there now. I don't know. I haven't been up there in a long time. Yeah, I know. But the ocean hasn't changed. No, the ocean has we can talk about pollution and a lot of other things, but the ocean itself that's what's so wonderful about it. The ocean is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you're in it? As often as I can be, and that's not as often as I would like, at least in part because I suffer from a fair amount of skin cancer. That was out being out in the water a lot. Uh, it's bad genes. <laughs> <laughs> 
And from your book that you did, and I'll mention it again, Surfing Newport Beach, The Glory Days of Corona Del Mar, what's the lesson that you learned from that book, the takeaway? Always appreciate the places that you have and do what you can to protect them. This was a place that was the first place on the mainland uh, that was became a big surf spot, at least in part because it had the kind of waves that the surfboards they had in those days could ride. And uh, we lost it because of, uh, uh, the, the, because of problems at the harbor mouth, and they had to build the jetties in order to protect the shipping interests. And as part of that, we lost it. But we do still have it when we have those huge south swells in the summer. The, the charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. solving things my next guest comes to mind earlier in the in the show we were talking to tom donovan who's the managing director here and, and we were talking about you know what people are looking for in a resort experience in terms of a genuine authentic i hate to use the word curated experience something that doesn't necessarily have a heavy tone of materialism to it um you know no, not everybody wants a bentley but they do want to you know immerse in the culture now these days and uh, joining me now the guest experience concierge supervisor say that three times fast <laughs> andrew bennett how are you sir good doing very well thank you all right. Well, you heard my introduction. Yes. I mean, are you seeing sort of a sea change in what guests are experiencing, at least what they're demanding for an experience? Absolutely. You know, in today's travel climate, people are really looking for the experiential travel. That's become a really large component of the overall guest experience. But, you know, we're not going to offer any single package to you. Everything that I do in this area... You're tailor-making. It's custom, all of it. All right, so give me an example. Because, you know, I don't want to see somebody making cookies. I want to bake them myself. Yeah. That's really what we're talking about, right? Cooking classes, absolutely. And that's one of those things that, you know, we can approach a number of different ways, um, both here at the resort and locally out in the area. Um, Our Andrea, our chef there at Andrea, offers pasta-making class seven days a week. So you can come and you can do it with our resort chefs. But if you wanted to go and experience it locally, um, you know, down in Laguna Beach, there's a a great place called Kitchen in the Canyon that's right there next to the Sawdust Art Festival, right in the heart of the Laguna Beach Canyon and Art District um, that does custom cooking classes as well. So we really do, we can find it for you. And you get some pretty outrageous requests. Absolutely, yeah. Give me an example of something that was like, "Are you serious?" And then you did it. So um, one of my one of my colleagues a couple years ago had a request from a guest, and uh, it was a sweet sixteen. This kid was turning sixteen years old, and they were coming to the resort. They were going to be golfing, and they wanted to give him his car on the 18th hole. And so we were involved in the entire process from actually coordinating the delivery of the vehicle. Can, can I dare ask a stupid question? Sure. What kind of car? <laughs> it was a BMW. I knew it. Oh, jeez, <laughs> oh, these spoiled kids. Unbelievable. Yeah, that was that was an interesting one. But, you know, I think the ones that... Was the kid grateful? Oh, yeah, they had a, they had a wonderful time. And, okay. you know, he shot a good round of golf, and then he comes up, and there's his brand new car waiting for him on the event lawn. So that was, that was a really interesting one, because we're not only having to touch the resort, but we're having to touch the dealership as well, telling them, you know, when, when this car gets here, make sure that it's detailed, because they're going to be taking tons of photos of it. And so we're thinking one step ahead of the guest as well well on all of those requests all right and i mean 
crazier than that? Crazier than that? Uh, the, the potbelly pig one is something. The potbelly pig. We had uh, some guests who were out celebrating a birthday uh, for their kids, and the mom wanted to bring in potbelly pigs. Because? Apparently the kid's into pigs. <laughs> so we, uh, <laughs> we, we, we called up our, our friends at the... Um, you, you, you went to the Rolodex under pigs. Under, under pigs, yeah. yes. Uh, we, we called our friends at the Orange County Fairgrounds. Uh, luckily, it was in the summer. They have piglet races in the summer, and they were willing to do it. They have piglet races. At the Orange County Fairgrounds. All right, it begs the question, were there, <laughs> were there piglet races in the hallways of the Pelican Hill Resort? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and how long did the pigs stay on the premises? Uh, they were only here about an hour, hour, maybe two hours. Yeah. <laughs> But it was, it was one of those things where... There are you know, so many lines I have that they, I can't use now to touch that. Okay. You, you get that yeah. request, and, and your first thought is, okay, where do, I, where do I go with this? And then you just start working through that list of people that you have in your head. Now, tell me you, didn't, you, you knew the uh, pig guy to call. You didn't. You did not. No, I, no, I didn't have someone specifically in my back pocket. Right, but I knew right. that the Orange County Fair had these. <laughs> and so we, we made the phone call. We said, please, please, please. And they said, okay, sure. And so they were on loan to you for about 60 minutes. Yeah, they were here for about an hour. And what services did they perform while they were here? It was just a, it, it was literally a petting zoo. That they was just, it. They, yeah, they, he just wanted to play outside with some pigs on the patio. <laughs> it sounds. This isn't the same kid who got the BMW. No, it's not. Okay, I'm just double checking <laughs> because this is getting a little dysfunctional here. Okay. It would have been actually appropriate had the BMW driven away with 85 pigs in it. There you that, go. That, <laughs> Right? Yeah. And then it becomes the bachelor party with Tom Hanks. <laughs> okay, I get it. But the thing is, is, as long as it's not illegal, you guys can pull it off. Absolutely, yeah. Unless it's, you know, illegal, unethical, or immoral, you know, my, my philosophy is, is yes first. Now, the pigs yes. in the garter belt, now that you've gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, even, even on, on, on that side, you know, just before I got down here, I had a request from someone who was in a wedding that needed a bow tie. That was it? That was it. Yeah, he needed a bow tie tied. Literally, I mean, moments before. And you just had to go and just tie the tie. I went up and tied the bow tie. Wow. Now, you see, what you should have done is dressed as the pig. <laughs> no? Okay. It was, it was a thought. It was a thought. Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Mattawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tokyo. Oh, on second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. Right. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, spare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Travel I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. As many of you know, I, I'm a boat nut. I live on a boat. I operate boats. And when I grew up in, uh, in New York, I grew up basically hanging out on ferry boats uh, run by families who are still running them today. And uh, that's very much the case of my next guest uh, here in Newport, uh, David Beek and the Balboa Ferry. Thank you. In your family, how many years? 100 years, as of just a couple weeks ago. Unbelievable. So your grandfather handed it down to your father who handed it down to you? That's correct. Well, my grandfather, my father's still alive, so he still operates the ferry service. Wow. How old's your dad? He just turned 86 two days ago. And he's still operating the boat? He's hopping. He's, he's rocking and rolling. <laughs> Explain the what? Tell me about the boats. So the um, I, I'll just make a long history very short. If you go back to about 1906, there was a red car that ran from Pasadena down to this little teeny village called Balboa, in the newly formed city of Newport Beach, 
and there was a guy named William Collins that was putting a bunch of dirt up and forming this island called Balboa Island. And he subdivided that island, and my grandfather was a, a older teenager then, and he came down from Pasadena, was hired by Collins to sell those lots on Balboa Island. So you had to get the people coming down on the red car to party in Balboa over to Balboa Island. That was the birth of the Balboa Island Ferry, to sell real estate on Balboa Island. I love it. And it's still going today. It's still going today. Now, it's not a long ride. 800 feet. <laughs> I, I set you up for that. Eight, that's, the, that's the length of the ride. It's length of the ride. A little over 800 feet, about three to six minutes. Wow. And how many people can take? Can you take? It's a three-auto ferry, the three, three cars per ferry, right. and 75 passengers. That's pedestrians and with bicycles. And that's it? That's it. Three ferries, though, so it's, it's a, the turnaround's pretty quick. Now, you're not operating 24 hours a day. It's, uh, we used to operate 24 hours a day. We're now 6 a.m. to 2 a.m., seven days a week. Wow. So, and if you miss the 2 a.m. ferry? You're swimming. 800 feet. <laughs> 800, or you're stealing a boat, which happens a lot as well. How has the harbor changed? It's, it's changed dramatically, especially since going back to the early days of the ferry. Um, that original ferry was basically a rowboat with an outboard on it. <clears throat> that, um, as the popularity of the automobile became relevant in the 20s and 30s, we, he then began building ferries that accommodated vehicles. And today we have three ferries that hold three cars apiece, and those were built in the late 40s and early 50s, and those three ferry boats are still operating. And those are steel boats? Those are wood boats. They're still wood? They're still wood. Come on. Believe it or not. You got maintenance, buddy. There is some serious maintenance. And they're the original boats in the 40s? The original boats. Oh, my right now, God. Now, obviously, the motors are changed out. We have a full-time maintenance crew that right. keeps them going. But you, got, they, you got diesel. They are diesels. Originally gasoline, but they are all John Deere diesels now. Right. And not, not that much horsepower. Uh, they're 150 horsepower. Yeah, they're babies. They're babies. They are babies. And there's a propeller on each end, so the boat just goes Oh, you're front directions. and back. You're front and back. Front and back. And you're maybe doing seven knots? Maybe. The speed limit in the harbor is five, so if they're doing seven, they can get in trouble. But <laughs> they, they probably could push it to seven if they wanted to. I mean... I'm sure there are some great stories about the regulars on that boat. It's, um, it's, it, there's, could, you could write volumes for all the stuff that happens, especially for those guys coming down at 2 a.m. that missed the ferry. Or the guys who got on at 2 o'clock and, and <laughs> fell off the ferry. <laughs> there are some of those as well. Right? Yep. They absolutely. do fell off from time there's to time. Those, and there's, every once in a while, a car goes off. No. Yeah, a couple times. And they got, they, did they fish them out? The, we, the, the people, fortunately, we had one fatality in the late 60s. Um, a guy came down when there was no ferry in the slip, and he mistakenly thought that there was, and he went off the ramp into the drink, and it was late at night, and no one saw him. But other than that, yes, everyone else has been retrieved safe and sound. And, and, and the cars, you know, too. And well, the, the, the cars might suffer a little bit more damage than the people. But, but they, they get, get them out. out of the water. They get them out. <laughs> Any marriages? Um, I, I know many, many marriage proposals. I don't think we ever had, at least to my knowledge, there's never been. It's too short of it. Unless it was, just a, it was a shotgun marriage. A very fast shotgun. Well, my other question is, did anybody say no? <laughs> that would be a great question, right? To put out there, um, that would be a horrible place. I to really want to put together a, 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 a like a thirty-minute special with this. She said no. That would be the title. And you know, the guy at the ballpark with eighty thousand people in the stands, honey, and there's the jumbotron on her, and it's like. No. Right. The difference is at the ballpark, it's a long exit. At the ferry, in one minute, you can get off and go the other way. <laughs> so you, so at least you can hedge your bets. If she says no, you can run off the ferry. That's right. Or jump off. What's the cost to go across? Um, it's $2 for a car and $1 for a passenger. That's cheap. It's, uh, we're regulated by the state. The, uh, the uh, 
Transportation Utilities Commission regulates our rates, but it is still the best bargain in town. It definitely is. And as you know, if you're regular listeners to the show, I always invite uh, my, not my next guest every week, but I always invite his job category every week we can on the show, and I'll tell you why. Because whenever I go to a new town, a new city, a new village, a new destination, one of the very first places I want to go is the firehouse. Why is that? Because they've been in everybody's house. They've been in everybody's hotel. They've been in everybody's restaurant. They know where to go. They know where not to go. And every once in a while, they might even know where to go eat. And joining me now, the fire chief at Newport Beach, Jeff Boyles. Jeff Boyles excuse me. How are you, chief? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And you're a local boy. I, I'm a local Southern California native, yes. But you've been with the department over 20 years. Correct. What's special about Newport Beach in terms of the challenges that you have in terms of firefighting? That's a great question. Um, one of the reasons I sought to work here are the dynamics that we have here in Newport Beach. One of the the most unique thing, I think, is that uh, we have eight islands here in Newport Beach. So we have And eight not everybody knows that. Not everybody knows that. In fact, one of our rookie probationary trick questions is that we actually have nine islands, if you count Fashion Island. But that isn't actually oh, an you island. Know, you, were going, you were doing so well until you did that. <laughs> I digress. Yeah. We have eight islands that are that are serviced by a bridge only uh, with traffic, and one of those islands actually has a fire station on them. But we have a we have a long peninsula. We have a harbor. We have a bay. We have a ferry. We have, we even have a Ferris wheel. We have wildland fire, um, fire swift interface, water. swift we water. Swift water. We have a canal running through. We have high rise. We have commercial buildings. We have an airport that uh, we live right underneath an airport. We have a freeway. So you're busy. We're busy. We have a lot of challenges that we have to train and prepare for. And your lifeguards. And we have lifeguards that are un- a division under the fire department. Yes. Fireboat. We have three fireboats. We actually we have three lifeguard boats. Our fireboat with a pump is serviced by the sheriff's department. Sheriff's Department, which is inside of our harbor. So we have a, a joint um, partnership with the sheriffs. And your population's growing. It's always growing. Southern California is growing. It's tough to keep up, yes. So at any given day, you're doing a rescue on the highway, and you're also doing a rescue on the water, and you're also doing a rescue somewhere else. From a cliff, from a remote uh, wildland area where we have to utilize helicopters, could be from a boat on an island. Uh, we have jetties that uh, people get stuck on or... or Boats actually run up upon. We have two piers as well, so we we have to train well, you for also pier the, firefighting. You also have the marine layer and fog. <laughs> <laughs> we do have that as well. Exactly. Yeah. Well, for people visiting Newport, because it's such a great place to visit, what's, what's the first mistake that they make that you can tell them how not to make? The first mistake of visiting Newport Beach? I mean, in terms of not being aware of their environment... Well, I, th- I think um, our lifeguards have a pretty good approach on that. And that's for people that go down to the beach for, um, you know, perhaps the first time. They come from other parts of the country, and they're not aware of riptides. They're not aware of uh, the terrain with the sand. They're not aware of of how powerful water and waves can be. And that's really something that we impress upon visitors. Yeah, yeah. swimming near the jetty, not a good idea. Not a good idea. (laughs) Swimming at the wedge is not a good idea. And also, if you get caught in a riptide, you have to be counterintuitive. Don't fight it. Don't fight it. Don't fight it. I mean, let it take you out and then figure out another way to get in. But if you fight it, you're going to get tired very fast. And we do always tell people, and I know it sounds cliche, but be sure to swim near a lifeguard because we do have full-time and seasonal lifeguards. So they're staffed up and down the beach. You can tell if they're on duty or not. Uh, you get yourself into a riptide or, or a serious situation, and, and you could be in big trouble quickly. 
All right, so now the, the obvious question i got to ask you, uh, let's assume I've never been to Newport. I'm coming over to see you. Where are you taking me for breakfast? Breakfast, yeah. great place. Cappy's Restaurant on Coast Highway. It's on the West Coast Highway. Um, they serve breakfast. They're open early, and they and what close we, at 3. And, and what are we eating? Cappy's has everything from omelets and eggs and French toast, all, all the breakfast fixings. It's a, it's a great little local place. So in the morning, that's where I'm going to find you. Yeah, but there'll be a line out the door, so you might have to wait 30 minutes to get in. <laughs> yeah, but if you're wearing the fire department uniform, maybe. We can get may- you in. Okay, yeah. good. Just double check. Just double check. And lunch? Lunch, we have, a, um, we have a, a restaurant here in town called Bear Flag, which uh, one is over by Lido Island on our, by our old city hall, and one is in the Crystal Cove area. But it's real fresh fish, ahi pokey, um, any different kind of fish you want to you want to enjoy, um, it comes right off the local coast. And it's, it's uh, again, it's another unique restaurant to our town, but it's called Bear Flag. It's really good. I love it called Bear you, Flag. You'll find most of the firefighters, police, and lifeguards there. So if I say, what's your 1020, it's going to be Bear Flag. Often, yes. Often, yes. Okay. <laughs> As opposed to the New York guys, it'll be Dunkin' Donuts. Correct. Okay, just double check it. Yeah. Okay. And, of course, in L.A., it would be Winchell's Donuts. Yes. But, okay. And dinner? Dinner, there's a great place in Corona Del Mar, again, that's unique to Newport Beach called the Bear, uh, the Bungalow. And that's, that's just a dinner place that's great food. The, uh, the owner's a great guy, great environment. What am I ordering? Ooh, they have everything from pork sliders to uh, some pasta to you name it. It's, it's uh, All the healthy food. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? 
and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.